noticed that, that it can be a bit scary or intimidating in sharing your faith with other people, especially when it's a situation that you're not very certain on how somebody's going to respond. Uh, because you don't want to, to annoy them. You don't want to strain that relationship. You certainly don't want to make things awkward between yourself and that other person. And as much as we would like the, this to happen, where, where someone just comes to us and says, man, I know you go to church. I know you, you believe in Jesus. I know you live in such a way. I just want to know what's different about you. Please share that with me. Those times do happen, but they're few and far between. And so it's important for us to not let some of these concerns about uncertainty stop us from sharing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And there's another, I think, obstacle that, that appears to us as we explore the book of Acts. Because sometimes when we look at the Apostle Paul and all of his journeys and all of what he has accomplished and done for the church and for Jesus, it, it, it feels inaccessible to us. What do I mean by that? I mean that, I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. God cared so much to send him, to choose him, that there was this miraculous experience where Jesus uh, showed himself in his glory to Paul on that road to Damascus, and, and they raised him up to this apostolic status, and then, and then worked all these miracles through him, and they gave him all these words to share with these churches that make up a huge portion of, of, of the inspired scripture that we have today. I mean, that's the Apostle Paul. And so when we think of, of him really as this superhero in the faith, Often we, we see ourselves as lagging so far behind that all of these examples that Paul gives us can seem so far away or inaccessible in a way of speaking. But I think, I think we need to push back on that a little bit. We might be uncomfortable with sharing our faith. We might find it hard to just uh, put ourselves in Paul's shoes, but he gives us so many good specific examples and teaching that we need to realize there is much we can learn from him even as he is the Apostle Paul, and we often feel like we are not. Today we will learn in particular from a story that has much to say about how we share the gospel and how it is received. And this all comes from Paul's time in the city of Athens. Okay, so we left last week with Paul in Philippi, and now he's in Athens. And so that means, let me get my laser pointer out, we need to play another round of Amazing Race Greece. That's what we're going to do today. Amazing Race Greece. Okay, here. I know many of you have asked me this last week, how is it going, Pastor? And I said, I'm really busy. And now you might be thinking, if you're so busy, how do you have so much time you can do such great Photoshop work like this? And I'll let you in on a secret. This didn't take me very long. <laughs> Just a couple minutes, that's it. I know, it's pretty crazy. But today we're going we're gonna to track how Paul continues on this amazing race of his second missionary journey. And so we have left them, if you can bring that map up, the last time we saw Paul and Silas, they were in Philippi, right here into Macedonia. And at Philippi, they were jailed for causing a disturbance. And then they were released from jail, but asked to still uh, not stay in Philippi anymore. And so um, Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, continue on this journey where Luke, who was with them for a time, does not. They continue westward, going from Philippi to Amphipolis and Apollonia, and I really don't like saying all these Greek names, but that's okay, because this is where they are. They're in Greece right now. And then they can carry on to Thessalonica, which is right here. And Thessalonica is, is a stop that should draw our attention, because this was the city and the church to which First and Second Thessalonians was later addressed by Paul. When they get to Thessalonica, they, they do something that becomes a bit of their MO or their habit. 
Paul enters the synagogue and he reasons there with the Jews from Scripture, from what we have as the Old Testament, and he reasons that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. And so he goes into a brand new town and he's never visited before in Greece, but he finds the local Jewish community and that's where he begins to share the hope of Jesus Christ in a very Jewish fashion. And while he is there in Thessalonica, some Jews and God-fearing Greeks believed, but there were others who were very hostile to the message of Jesus. And these people, uh, largely Jews, hostile to what Paul was saying, raised up a mob and, and went and attacked the house of Jason where Paul and Silas had been staying. Unfortunately for the mob, Paul and Silas weren't home at the time, just Jason and his household. And so they grab Jason and they bring him before the authorities and they accuse him of hosting men, and I quote, who have turned the world upside down. And I love that quote, and I think it's an important one because it's beginning to give us a sense of some of the effect that the good news of Jesus is having on the religious and political status quo in the Roman Empire. I mean, Paul and Silas now have gone uh, to Judea and Syria and Galatia and now Macedonia. And now Barnabas has, has gone and, and, and gone through Cyprus. And, and, and the good news is spreading all over the known Roman Empire. And it's causing a scene because allegiance to Jesus requires allegiance to other things to be given up. And it's turning the world upside down. So Jason, their host, is, is fined and then released. So he had to pay a penalty for hosting Paul and Silas. But brothers find Paul and Silas before uh, the mob can, and they escort them out of Thessalonica to Berea at night. Do we still have that map? wasn't quite done. There we go. So Berea is just a little bit down the road from Thessalonica. There you see it there. And at Berea, they again go to the synagogue and they preach to the Jewish community from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Unlike Thessalonica, the Berean Jewish community is quite open, warm, and receptive to the good news of Jesus, and many more are believing. But as what happened during their first missionary journey, there is the mob from their previous leg of the journey comes and follows them and makes trouble. So Thessalonian Jews opposed to Paul and Silas and, and the gospel come to Berea, and they again stir up trouble for them, and so they need to leave Paul is immediately sent away by sea, but Timothy and Silas stay behind for a bit, and Paul will sail all the way from Berea to Athens, which is a city, and at least by name, that should be very familiar to us. And so at this point, Paul is by himself in Athens. He is winning the Amazing Race Greece, but now there is a detour, and he needs to stay there for a little while before he finds out what the next leg of the journey will be. Now, I'm sure if I was Paul, and all of this had happened to me, and I kept getting run out of town by those so upset with me that they want me to do bodily harm to me, I, I would probably go to a place like Athens, which would have been a huge and glorious city, a little bit past its heyday. It used to be the center of the civilized world, but it is still a cultural hub with amazing history. I would go and eat the food and see the sights and maybe kick up my feet and relax for a little bit until Silas and Timothy can join me. That's what I would do if I was Paul. But he spends his time in Athens a little bit differently. I'd invite you now to open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. And this morning we'll do it slightly differently than the past few weeks. I want to read this story with you together. So I will read and you can follow along. And then we're going to draw out some lessons from it at the same time. So how does Paul spend his time in Athens? This is what Luke records for us. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to preach of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent." because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Herapagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. I did pretty good until that last name. That was all right. What can we learn from a story like this? How does it become accessible to us? Well, when Paul was spending some time in Athens, he may not have just sat down and taken a break, but he did go out and see the sights. And he was walking around the city, and as he was walking around the city, he, see, he saw all of these idols, and they would have been idols to the, to the Greek pantheon, if you know anything about the Greek mythology. Really, this is an example of what we could call cultured paganism. But it provokes something within Paul. That word provoked really means to stir up to anger. He was angry not at the Athenians, but at this notion that they were so religious and so close to the truth and yet so far away. And so he allows this righteous anger to lead him not to take a vacation, but instead to continue to preach the good news, even as he was all on his own. So Paul starts to share the gospel, the truth about Jesus, but he did so in a relatable way. And that is a big idea for us to take today, too. We also need to learn how to share the gospel in a relatable way, a way that makes sense to the people and to the world around us. And this isn't something new for Paul. He's been doing this at every stop along the way. As soon as he gets to a new community, he goes to the synagogue, and he's surrounded by Jews, just as he is a trained and devout Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes, and he speaks to the Jews, and he shares with them from their own scripture. 
the truth about Jesus. And he, he shares from them from their own expectation of a Messiah, declaring that this Messiah has indeed come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is sharing the good news of Jesus to the Jews in the synagogues in a relatable way. And yet Paul did not stay in the synagogue in Athens. He also went out to the marketplace. And where the synagogue would have been a place where everyone would have been of like mind, the marketplace would have been the exact opposite. Especially a marketplace in Athens, which would have still been a huge cultural hub in the Roman Empire. There would have been predominantly Greek-speaking and Greek cultural people there, but also it would have been from every nation in that area. It was, it was a huge city, and the marketplace was a common area where there would have been a diverse group of people. And so Paul would have presented the gospel one way in a synagogue and in a vastly different way in a marketplace in Athens because his audience was vastly different. Luke, in writing this for us in the book of Acts, lets us know that some of the groups of people he's talking to in the marketplace in Athens are some Greek philosophers. And Athens has long been known for being the seat of philosophy. A few hundred years earlier, you could have run into Plato and Aristotle and Socrates in Athens. And there is still this definitive legacy of philosophy going on in the city at this time of our story. And two main groups are highlighted for us. The first are the Epicureans. This group was largely materialistic. They looked at the Greek pantheon and they say that the gods likely don't exist at all. But even if they do exist, they are very far away. They're completely un un uninterested in human beings and their behavior. And so we need to worry about the here and the now, what we can touch and what we can see and what we can feel. And then the Stoics were the second group and they had a different mindset. They did believe in a prime reality or a god of a sort, but it was the god of reason or as they would say, logos, which is a very important term to John at the beginning of his gospel. But this logos, or this reason, was an impersonal force. It was not a personal, relational God. It was just this force of reason that structured the universe. <clears throat> and so they became pantheistic, believing there was a little bit of this divine logos within everything. And, and really the ethics stressed obedience to duty. And so those are just very, in very short order, some of the ideas of the Epicureans and the Stoics. And if you want me to get into greater detail in ancient Greek philosophy, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to talk to me afterwards. And I'll tell you, go talk to Pastor Earl. He knows more about this stuff. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Just a handful of the people he would have been talking to in that marketplace. And then we see the details of Paul's apologetics for the faith to the Greeks when he is taken to the era... Areopagus to speak. The Areopagus literally translated means Ares Hill. Ares being the Greek god of war. And so if we were to contemporize that to Paul's time, it would be the Roman god of war, Mars. And so we are talking about Mars Hill. The Areopagus is Mars Hill. And some of your translations may have that reference to it. Uh, we also probably know Mars Hill more for some of the, the churches that have borne that name than maybe the story where it gets its foundation from. There's going to be a quick little video that shows you the Areopagus today. It's still a significant hill in Athens. And on one side of the hill, down at the bottom, you can see the Acropolis on the other side. And that would have overlooked the Areopagus. And then if you go and look uh, the other direction on the Areopagus, you see modern Athens below you. And this hill was important, not just for debate, but a specific council would meet there. And it had important judicial functions. So if there were high matters of the court then the council would hold trials and other judicial debates on the Areopagus. 
it was an important place to be. Now, I don't think that with the context we have, I don't think Paul was on trial. But the council was there, and the council wanted to know what Paul was saying. His ideas were so new and so radical. And so they bring Paul. They don't invite him. They grab him and bring him to the Areopagus, this important cultural hub, to explain further what he means about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And when Paul speaks to that council on the Areopagus, he speaks in a particular way. He speaks in a relevant way. He uses this existence of an altar to an unknown God as a springboard to present the rest of the gospel. Because this altar of an unknown God is a Greek reality. It exists. It's known to them. They have agreed upon it. They know it. They understand it. And in some fashion, they believe it. And because of that, Paul then uses it to launch into an even greater discussion about who Jesus is in light of this altar to an unknown God. And so how can Paul be accessible to us today? Well, in the same way, we need to use a springboard for the gospel that our culture understands. In the same way that Paul found this ability as an altar to, to get into the truth of Jesus, we need to find these same springboards. Well, what is a springboard? I will start by saying that I do not watch gymnastics. I, I never do. And if I did, I'd never admit it, but I don't. Now, Karen likes to watch some gymnastics during, uh, during the Olympics. And sometimes I might linger at the back of the living room, but I don't watch it. And, and, and the vault is one of the very most interesting gymnastic events. And they will run uh, and get a full head of steam. And then they will jump on a springboard to get up to the vault and then vault themselves in the air, do some very simple things, and then land for the judges. And that's my interpretation of gymnastics. <laughs> but that springboard is critical. It is what propels the gymnast to be able to do the rest of what is, okay, admittedly a very spectacular move in the air to get that high score. And so that is, I think, the exact image that we need to keep in mind when it comes to what we can learn from Paul in sharing the gospel in a relatable way. Find a springboard that culture knows and understands and believes and accepts to propel you to talk further about how this pertains to Jesus. And again, Paul has done this multiple times. When he went into the synagogue, he used that Jewish expectation of a Messiah. They're looking for the anointed one of God to come and deliver the people. And Paul uses this as a springboard and says to all who would listen, that person has come and he is Jesus Christ. And then he goes to the Areopagus and he, he uses this altar to an unknown God and says, you declare this person to be unknown, but get what? I know who this God is. And he uses this as a springboard to talk about the truth of Jesus Christ. What would springboards look for us today? Because we don't live in a Jewish community and we don't live in ancient Greece. But I do think that springboards are around us all the same. For example, a number of years ago, uh, my family and I visited the Canadian Museum for Human Rights right in, here in Winnipeg. And I'm not sure if it's still there, but at that time there was a huge banner displayed right by the entrance. Uh, it was just massive. You couldn't miss it. And it said this, All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And, and while I might argue that that, it, that, for, that doesn't actually go far enough for what I would believe to be true, what it does say, I agree with. I do believe all human beings are free and equal in dignity and in rights. And what my question would be to those who crafted that statement and hung the banner, and for all those who are, are, are looking at this museum, I would say, why is that true? 
I agree with this statement, but why do you believe it's true? Why in your mind are human beings free and equal in dignity and rights? Because then I can share with them that I believe that God has created human beings in His image. And that gives immeasurable value to everyone fully equal in dignity and rights. So that's now a cultural springboard to talk about the good news of Jesus. Just this past week when my in-laws were visiting, we went on, um, we went on a hike up by Grand Beach at the Broken Head Wetlands, and uh, they had a saying there. And my mother-in-law and I went and we looked at this saying, and, and we really liked it and we talked about it. And I think it's a, this is a good thing to bring up on, on the uh, heels of National Truth and Reconciliation Day. Yesterday, uh, we have a saying like this. The Ojibwe teach us that everything alive is interconnected and has a purpose to fulfill. We need to respect that purpose to maintain a balance in the world. And so again, I was talking with my mother-in-law and we love the statement. We believe it was true and it's wise. And I think it's wonderful to share from other cultures some of that wisdom that's been passed down through the generations. And if I were to look at this, the conversation that I would want to continue to have with someone who believes in this statement is, what is this purpose? You say that everything has a purpose to fulfill. We need to respect the purpose, but what purpose do you believe you have and who gives you that purpose? Because I believe that that, that God has sent his own son to die for me so that I could have this everlasting life in, in him and that gives me my purpose. That's not only springboard to share the gospel. It starts from a, a common understanding and a common bond. And lastly, and I think probably the most um, difficult of springboards that I would mention today is, is this, the fact that, that, that our country, Canada, has some of the, the most relaxed restrictions around medical assistance in dying. And our government just tabled in March what would be legislation to further expand access to MAID to the point where someone solely for issues of mental illness could go in and choose to take their own life. And now, because of this rampant access to made in our country, it's not just Christians or people of faith that are having second guesses or having some hesitation about how, how this is going to open Pandora's box. There are so many counselors and psychologists and, and other people who are saying, wait a minute, haven't we been working so hard to talk about bringing mental illness out of the darkness and into the light and having open conversations and seeking treatment and seeking counseling? And haven't we been spending years trying to send the message that your life is worth living. Are we not undermining all of this by increasing access to MAID? And so we can find ourselves on common ground with so many others when it comes to that. And we can say, hey, you know why I believe every life is worth living? And now we're having another conversation about the good news of Jesus Christ. These springboards are all around us. We just need to keep our eyes open to them. And so Paul uses his when he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I, I proclaim to you. You don't know this God, but I do. And let me tell you about him. Paul proceeds to declare that this God is the creator of the universe. Therefore, because he has made everything, he doesn't live in man-made temples. He doesn't need anything from human beings. In fact, the opposite is true. It is God himself who supplies human beings with everything they need. Paul has done this before. He has talked about, argued that God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He quotes in verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul goes on to argue to all of those Greeks on Mars Hill that God has designed humanity to seek after him. And he's not distant like the Epicureans would believe, but he is close to each and every one of us. 
God and man are related. Paul says we are God's offspring. So if we are God's offspring and we are living beings, then must not this God that we come from also be a living being? So then idols don't make any sense. How can we come from a God who is represented by an idol and is not living if we indeed are living beings? Idolatry does not make sense. And as Paul continues to lay out the gospel in this way, we see another lesson in apologetics. He uses a springboard, but he also uses language and understanding in this culture to make his point. What do I mean by that? I mean, he quotes from two different Greek poets in verse 28. He says in verse 28, In him we live and move and have our being. That is likely a quote from Epimenides of Crete. I'm very glad I got that name right. And then he also quotes later on, he says, Even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. That's a direct quote from Eratus' poem, Phenomena. And so Paul is, is saying all these truths about God that are revealed in Hebrew Scripture, but he doesn't use Hebrew Scripture. He uses Greek poetry to make this point because it is a language and an idea that his listeners understand. That is our second point. We also need to use language and ideas that the culture understands. Because if he were to go into a Jewish synagogue and quote Greek poets, then his argument would fall flat. And if he were to go onto Mars Hill and quote Hebrew scripture, his argument would fall flat. So we also need to use language and ideas that our culture relates to and understands. Now, my oldest son, Eli, is, is old enough now to go to the youth Sunday school class. And one of the things I love that they're doing is, they're, um, Jamie, you do a fantastic job of encouraging them to memorize scripture. And it's great. And so we asked Eli this week, just coming into church today, have you memorized your Bible passages? He's like, I did one. I'm like, what, not the other one? He's like, no. And we're like, why not? He said, I didn't like the candy that I was going to get if I memorized the longer passage, so it wasn't worth it. And this is why pastor's kids have complexes, right? Because they, they share these things in confidence, and then the pastor just preaches about it. That's neither here nor there. But it is so good to internalize God's word and to, to have scripture with us and to take it. And at some point, when we are sharing the hope we have in Jesus, we need to introduce the Bible. But when we are starting to talk about Jesus to someone who doesn't believe in God and has never agreed that this is the word of God, then quoting the Bible at them at the very beginning may not be the best thing to do. We need to supplement our understanding and the foundation of scripture with, again, ideas that the world around us can relate to because that will be so much more meaningful. I think we, we begin to do this by uh, addition through subtraction and getting rid of all these Christianese things. We have so many terms and phrases and words that only make sense if you've grown up in the church. So if you're striking up a conversation with someone and they're not from a church background and, and you've used a good springboard and they're with you and they want to know about Jesus and you say, hey, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? What, what do you think they're going to respond to that? Like, does that make, I, that barely makes sense to me, right? But we'll sing songs that way and we can have phrases like that and it just won't be helpful to a certain person who doesn't have that church background. So avoid Christianese language. Instead, look for language that's shared. And I think a great example of this can be movies. When, when I was a youth pastor, I liked to do a movie night every once in a while. And the main reason was it was very low prep. I could just put, choose a movie and set it up and then there we go. But, but you have to have a reason for showing a movie. So it forced me to dig a little deeper. And I love the challenge of finding a, a secular movie that had some wonderful 
resonating uh, ideas about who Jesus is, and then to unpack that later. And perhaps one of my favorite movies is the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And I'll give you a bit of spoilers here. It's been out for a long time, so if you haven't seen it yet, shame on you, not on me, okay? And at the end of this movie, uh, the Guardians, who are this band and this family of closely knit friends, uh, they're getting shot down, and they're, 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 their spacecraft is going to crash, and it looks like they're all going to die. And what happens is one of this band is, a, is, a, is an alien that looks like a tree. His name is Groot, right? And his one and only phrase that he says is, I am Groot. Exactly. Thank you for helping me out. I couldn't remember that one. And so Groot, what he does is he's this tree-like alien, and he grows a hedge of himself around his family and friends, and then they crash, and Groot dies. And it is sad. And when I started watching this superhero comedy, I didn't think I would be sad. But what's amazing is that a little sapling of Groot gets planted, and then a few days later, he's alive again. I'm like, huh, we watched this Marvel movie, and then all of us are moved because at the end of the movie, somebody sacrifices himself to save his friends and then comes back to life. I wonder if that isn't language that our world understands. I wonder if that isn't a wonderful tie-in to the greatest story ever told. Now we're talking about Jesus, and we're on the same page. I also think it's important to keep our scientific conversations scientific. So this is another lesson I learned as a young adult pastor. One of the first Bible studies we did was called True You, put on by Focus on the Family. And their whole point of that first season of the Bible study was to, to make an argument that God does exist. But they want to make that argument in a way that's scientifically acceptable. So the very first episode, they say, we're going to use the uh, scientifically accepted timeline for these things. We're not going to say that time, we're not going to focus on timeline at all. We're not going to say it has to be literally six days. We're not going to say it has to look like this and then like that. We're going to use the language and the acceptable terms of the entire scientific community. And then within that, let's see if there's not still compelling evidence and reasons for why God does exist. And you know what? There was so many good reasons from the, the, the Big Bang, which now requires the universe to have a beginning. It couldn't have just existed for all eternity. It had to have a start to the fine-tuning of that universe, to continue to sustain life, to the complexity of DNA within human beings that is far more complicated than any computer code that we could ever hope to dream up. When we allow to, to ourselves to keep a scientific conversation within the boundaries of, of accepted scientific limits, then there's still so many other pieces of evidence that point to God. We need to use language that's acceptable to the world around us. That's what Paul does. He uses the springboard of the unknown idol, and he quotes Greek poetry to drive point to home that God is close to us. We are his offspring. And then, just when the time is right, he brings the truth of Jesus. He says, lastly, the time of ignorance is over. Repent, because Jesus will come to judge the world. And this has proven to be true because God has resurrected Jesus from the dead. And Paul knows an important truth. It's not enough just to use language that our culture can understand. It's not enough just to have commonality. He knows that his listeners need to be challenged with the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's our last point as well, to make sure to bring the truth of Jesus home. When we went to the uh, cabin this summer, uh, we chose not to go through uh, northern Ontario because of all the construction that was going on there, which needs to happen. 
But I, I do love to see how they are blowing this rock away. Because in order to, to remove bedrock like they're doing in northern Ontario to make room for a highway, you need to drill down into the middle of this rock. And then you need to plant a charge there. And then it will explode the rock from the inside out. And in the same way, and I'm borrowing an analogy from Tim Keller, in the same way, when we share the gospel, we need to, we do to do so in a relevant manner. We need to drill down into the middle of our culture. We need to use springboards that they understand and keep language that they understand and relate to them in relationship. But if all we do is drill down into culture and to be relevant, if we never bring the truth of Jesus there, then nothing has changed. We're in the middle of the world, but the world is no different. In the same way, if we bring the truth of Jesus as this charge and we don't bother building relationships or sharing the good news of Jesus in a strategic way and we just yell it uh, from the outside looking in, then all we're doing is blasting off little parts of the rock on the outside of the surface. We'll never affect any actual change. That rock will never move. We need to drill down into the middle of culture and then we need to bring the truth of Jesus there and then watch what he does from the inside out. Paul knows this. And we ought to know it today as well. But this is only part of the story, how Paul shared the gospel. And I know there may be a few of you here today that are uncertain. I don't even know how I feel about this message. I'm not sure how I have responded to the good news of Jesus. We also see examples of this in our story as well. Some of his listeners were resistant and hostile to the gospel message. When he was sharing in the marketplace, this group of people would say, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler is an interesting uh, translation. It's actually a, a, a Greek idiom that literally translated means a, a bird picking or scavenging for crumbs in the gutter. For someone who's just grasping at straws, wants these ideas to be true. What does this babbler have to say? He doesn't know what he's talking about. Others couldn't believe the audacity of the resurrection. They mocked Paul in verse 32. Many of those who were listening to him were infatuated with a new idea, like a shiny toy. Luke goes out of his way to say that they just liked this message because it was new and interesting and foreign and exotic. They weren't interested in, in, the, in the truth of the message. They were interested in a brand new idea, and that was all. And still others listened, received, and believed, including Dionysius and Damaris. And I'm glad I did that name a lot better the second time around. But if we're looking at all these different examples of the responses to the gospel in Athens, it should remind us of a parable of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. This is what he teaches there. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But then his disciples, just in the interlude, said, We don't actually know what you said, what you meant by that. And so we have, in verse 13, an explanation. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So this story and this parable beg the question for us, how are you receiving the gospel? Or if I were to put it to you in an affirm, affirming way, we need to receive the gospel with an open heart. And be honest. Don't just think of the answer that you know I want to hear as a pastor. Where are you in this story? Do you find yourself like those on the path, hostile and resistant to the message? I don't want to hear it. It's closed-minded. It's old-fashioned. It's religious and legalistic. I want nothing to do with it. And it never grabs hold in the first place. Those that called Paul a babbler and mocked him. Perhaps you find yourself like those who were sown in the thorns. You're intrigued by the message, but more intrigued by the cares of the world. There were many like those in Athens who loved the idea that Paul was giving to them, but they loved new ideas more than they loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. For them, philosophy was a care of the world that separated them from believing and trusting in the hope of Jesus. And for you, it could be like, I'm open to this idea, but as long as it doesn't hinge on taking away from my comfort or my dreams or my desires or my relationships, and as long as I can do everything I want to do, perhaps you're like those in the thorns. Or maybe you find yourself like those on rocky ground. You've accepted the good news of Jesus. You, you prayed a prayer when you were young. You got baptized, maybe even on this very stage, but you're just not sure how deep your roots go. You're not sure how you're able to weather any of the storms of life. You're like, I I believe, but I'm not sure I have a relationship. I'm not sure I I really understand Scripture. I'm not sure that I can say that I love God. I believe in Him, but do I love Him? Are you prepared to dig deeper into your relationship with God? Or perhaps you find yourself like those planted in good soil, ready to hear the good news of Jesus, to accept it, and then to bear good fruit by going and sharing with others in a way that that they understand in a way that's a springboard from what they believe, in a way that effectively shares the hope of Jesus. And as the music team comes for one final song, I think this is something that I don't want to undersell. This is an incredibly important decision for you to make. Whether you've made it in the past, whether you're affirming it today, whether you are still struggling with it in this moment, what does your life say about the choice that you have made to the good news of Jesus? Let's pray once more. Father, you have sent your Son, your one and only Son, to come to this earth, to live among us, to teach among us, to be an example, uh, to, to point to you, to live a perfect sinless life, and at some point to be so obedient to your will that he would sacrifice himself on the cross because he cares about us. And God, this story doesn't stay at the cross or in the tomb, but we know that three days later you raised him from the dead, which is proof that he is coming again. Proof that the time for repentance is at hand. Proof that we have life eternal in him. God, this is good news. And I pray that we would be a people that are ready to receive this good news with an open heart and ready to share this good news in a way that the world around us understands because you are not far from them. Amen.